You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. I'm glad you're here, and I'm excited to bring this teaching to you. This is part two of a three-part teaching series that I'm doing on biblical justice. And my hope is that this series will help empower you, equip you to become passionate about biblical justice and maybe even become a biblical justice warrior to really have an informed worldview about the issue. I really do hope that you will find these teachings helpful in your own journey of understanding um, God's standard of justice and how to live that out in your everyday life. And I really hope that you will share this teaching with friends and family, your pastor, uh, your children, especially your teenage children, because there is very little out there right now. And there's a growing amount, that, you know, but there's still very little out there to help us disciple Christians with a solid theology of justice. So we need to make sure that we're providing good discussions on justice issues especially when we have children in our home who just naturally gravitate toward those issues. God has made some of our children to be passionate about justice, and that's a good thing. It is good to be passionate about justice because in, the, in that passion, there is a desire to reflect the very character of God, and that is a good thing. But we, that's all the more reason for us to teach our children how to be obedient to all of Jesus's commands and not be deceived by the world's definition of justice. Now, in part one of this series, we laid some groundwork about how justice is founded in God's holy character. We laid out a biblical definition of justice. We're going to give both of those concepts a very brief review at the top of the teaching tonight. But really what we're going to do tonight, the lion's share, is we're going to unpack and begin to unfold God's justice standards in more detail and how they apply to our everyday life. Now, before we jump in, I want to say a quick word about my next online class. It's coming up very soon. It starts two weeks from today. It's called God's Big Story. It's going to be eight weeks long. We're going to go through the storyline of the entire Bible to help you build a framework for how to properly interpret the Bible. So if you'd like more information or to register, just go to theologymom.com backslash classes, click on God's big story, and that will take you to a link where you can get more information about meeting times and a description and tuition and all of those fun things. So you can check all of that out there at theologymom.com backslash classes. Okay, let's get into it here. Let's start by a very brief review of a few critical points that we made in uh, part one of this series. Now, we said last time that the most foundational thing we must understand about the biblical definition of justice is that justice flows out of God's very character. Justice cannot be separated from God's holiness or his love or his omnipotence or any of his other attributes. If we want to know what justice is, then we need to look at the very character of God. And if we want to know where justice comes from, God's character is the standard. And so because God is just, he wants his people to reflect his character and act in ways that are righteous and just too. Um, let's look at a couple of very brief review passages. Deuteronomy chapter 16 it says this, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land your, the Lord your God is giving you. 
God wanted his people to be known for their justice. This is this. If you want to like a, a very brief summary of biblical justice, this is a great passage to mark in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Here's another helpful summary from Isaiah, from one of the prophets. Isaiah says this in chapter 33, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. And what I want to draw your attention here is all of these attributes of God that are all intertwined with each other, that God is, he's the judge, he's the lawgiver, and he's the king. And he is the one who saves us. He is the one who wants to rule and reign in our hearts. So if, if we as God's people are going to reflect the character of our savior and our creator, we will need to reflect deeply on how we, his people will display his righteousness and justice to others. And part of this project involves reflecting on what scripture has to say about what justice is. I love this proverb. I found this just this week and I wanted to share it with you tonight. It's from Proverbs chapter 28, verse five. It says this evil doers do not understand what is right, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. In, in other words, God's people, we, we ought to be way ahead of the culture when it comes to a discussion about justice. We have the insider information right here because, because we understand what is right. Evildoers, apart from God, and then God is not reigning in their hearts, they don't understand what is right, what is just. But those who seek the Lord should understand it fully. We have the insider information from the source of justice itself, the creator of the universe, okay? So we, if any discussion about justice, we've got to start with understanding its origin. Okay, last time we also gave a very brief definition of biblical justice, but it's rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard of God's moral law. Now, last time we dissected this definition piece by piece, impartiality, proportionality, giving everyone his due, and God's moral law. We only barely scratched the surface last time on that fourth piece of God's moral law. We're going to do a really deep dive into that fourth aspect of our definition of justice tonight in this teaching and impartiality. We just read that verse earlier from Deuteronomy about not favoring the rich or the poor. That's, that's a perfect example of God's justice standard of being impartial. In other words, the same rules apply to everyone. And this is something that we are getting farther and farther away from in our country as people who are in the elite class, the rich class, can almost they almost have different rules that apply to them than to the regular people. That is an injustice according to God's justice standards, okay? So tonight we're going to talk about this aspect of God's moral law. Now, you might be wondering, <laughs> what does the phrase God's moral law actually mean? What is that referring to? Well, that's a very important question. So historically speaking, there are three categories of laws, uh, and these are man-made categories. These are not like terms that the Bible uses. These are just handy-dandy mental hooks that scholars have come up with as a way of kind of sorting different um, aspects of the Mosaic law. There's the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, and the civil laws. There's no slide for this. Uh, the ceremonial laws, think of those as all the laws related to worshiping God. The temple, the priests, what the priests wear, the temple furniture, how it's constructed, the sacrifices, the holy days, and all of those things are all fulfilled in Jesus. That's basically what the book of Hebrews is about. 
sections of acts and that kind of a thing. So um, all of those ceremonial laws in the Mosaic law are all fulfilled in Jesus. We're not really talking about that in this series. What we're more focused on are the moral laws and to some degree, the civil laws. Now, the moral laws tell us about how we, as God's people, can reflect his character in our everyday life, how we ought to order our lives, how we ought to walk according to the Spirit. And these include things like the Ten Commandments. They tell us how to treat one another. And uh, this is what we are calling in this teaching series, Instructions for How to Do Justice, okay? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. So the major question that we must ask when it comes to justice, and I see far too Christians ask this question, so I really want to highlight it and bring it to your attention, is by what standard are you trying to execute justice? When the culture is coming at us and telling us what is just or right or fair or unjust, the question you must ask yourself in your mind, ask the Lord, um, have a dinner conversation about with your children. And the question, if you're brave, you know, you want to you want to bring it up with others is the question by what standard are we determining that something is just or right or fair or unjust? Who decides who arbitrates this? Because as we said last time, social justice is about redistribution according to need. Well, there's other ways that we could redistribute things. We could redistribute according to wealth. We could, or merit. We could, um, there's, there's all this conversation happening right now in our culture about inequitable power. We need to redistribute power. We need to redistribute money. Okay. But the question that we have to ask that's even behind all of those conversations is by what standard? By what standard do we engage in a project of redistribution? And is that standard consistent with God's very character? See, what's happening in our culture right now is that we are setting ourselves up as the standard. We're setting up consensus. We're setting up cultural sensibilities. Now, it used to be we called this common sense. Well, it's just common sense, what's fair, what's right, what's just. But that assumed that everyone in the culture kind of had a shared understanding and a shared value system, even broadly so based on Judeo-Christian values. But we don't have that anymore. So what's common sense, I think, is shifting to something else. But what very few people step back to ask is, well, why is it considered fair to take money from this person and give it to this person over here? We're such in a posture now of assuming it's just common sense that there shouldn't be rich people and there shouldn't be poor people. That's just common sense. If there's a rich person, that means he's probably stolen the money from someone. And that, that, that that's not fair. Well, according to what standard is that not fair? According to what standard is being rich not a good thing, not a virtuous thing? So we've got to step back and ask the question, by what standard? So very often when I'm talking to people about justice, I, I just notice that they usually have little to no awareness about the standard that's being used to determine what is just and unjust. They just sort of go along with the, the cultural sensibilities, their common sense, their emotions when it comes to justice. They very seldom stop to think, yeah, where am I getting that standard? Why do I think that that's just or right or good? But as Christians, we have a standard, and it is not common sense. Please don't say that our standard is common sense. That's a secular, pragmatic idea. As Christians, we have a standard of justice. We don't need to go along with just being carried 
along by our emotions or vague cultural concepts or our common sense. Instead, we turn to the scriptures to tell us how to order our lives, how we ought to walk. So let's begin here with a conversation about differentiating between the law and the gospel. Now, this is a very important concept that I find very few evangelicals understand. I hear many Christians say Christianity is about loving God and loving people. And yes, it includes that, but it is also more than that. The loving people is not the gospel. Loving God and loving others omits the gospel, which is a huge component of our faith. Loving God and loving others is actually connected to the law, not the gospel. So I want to make this the focus of this first segment of the teaching. Let's first talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? I've got a little definition here. The gospel is what God has done to rescue us from the punishment and effects of sin and death. The gospel transforms our hearts. It is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It gives us a new identity. It creates a new people. It starts small like a mustard seed, but it has a big result like a mustard tree. That is the kingdom of God. It brings salt and light to the world. In other words, it brings incremental transformation. So again, the gospel is what the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done for us. Go read Ephesians 1. That's what the gospel is. It's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for us. What we were helpless to do in our sinfulness, God did for us. Okay, so that's the gospel. Now let's talk about the law. Let's start with Jesus's words here. In Matthew 22, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So it's a trap question. So it's a bunch of academics with a trap question for the rabbi who didn't go to the proper rabbi school. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I want to draw your attention to some key words here that you might not have noticed before. Notice Jesus' answer to the question of what is the greatest commandment? The, 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 this um, Pharisee, This expert in the law is not asking him about the gospel. He's asking him about a commandment. He's asking him about the law. And what does Jesus give him? He gives him two laws, love the Lord and love your neighbor. And then notice what he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So love is law. All right. So we're going to, we're going to really start to unpack that. I want to give you one more scripture here from Romans 13. It says, let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has what? Fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. And whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So what I want you to know tonight is that love is on the law side of the equation, all right? So I know it's very popular right now (laughs) to say that Christianity is all about loving God and loving your neighbor. But when you say that, that's, that's not actually the good news. That's not the gospel. As a truncated perspective of our faith, you're only giving people the law. The truth is, is that the law will never save us. 
That's what the gospel does. What the law can reveal are sinfulness. The law can reveal the righteousness of God and reveal his character. So when we think about this, I want to expand this a little further in a classical way and talk about the three uses of the law. If you look in like the Westminster Confession and other Reformed Confessions, you can find this distinction of the three uses of the law. I think this is a very helpful distinction. And again, this isn't a biblical distinction. It's not in the Bible per se, but this is kind of mental hooks that scholars have come up with to help us understand the uses of the law and how it's used in scripture for the New Testament Christian. The first use of the law is the mirror. It is reflecting to us the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. So let's look at this very brief verse from Romans chapter 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is a great summary of the first use of the law. Let's look at Galatians really quick. Galatians chapter 3, it says this, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of our transgressions until the seed to whom the promise had referred had come. And that's the seed of the woman. It's the, it's the Messiah. The law was given through angel, angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, applies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. In other words, the law can't save you. It can't make you righteous. Okay? It, it couldn't impart life. It couldn't bring regeneration. But the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was the guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So as you can see, the problem is not with God's law. God's law is perfect and beautiful. David says, I love your law. Rather, what we see in this passage is that in this use of the law, that the law reveals our sin and the peril that we are in, having God judge us for our sins. This is why we need the gospel. <laughs> the gospel calls us to repentance. The gospel comes to our rescue. The gospel and when we respond to it in belief and faith in Christ can bring life. So the second function of the law or use of the law is that to guide Christians in obedience. So when Jesus says that we are to disciple people and teach them to obey all of his commands, which is what it says in Matthew 28, 19, we're talking about the second use of the law. The law tells God's children how to walk in their life. So it doesn't bring life, but once we are regenerated by the gospel, then the law comes. The second use of the law tells us how to live so that we can please our heavenly father. It says this in the gospel of John. If you love me, keep my commands. John 14 15, very succinct way of saying this, that this second use of the law is kind of like what we could call the house family rules. This is how we will participate with one another. This is how we will treat one another. This is what I want my children to grow up to act like. This is the second use of the law. This is the moral law. This is what we're talking about. Now, again, I want to restate the law cannot save us. According to the first use of the law, it can reveal our sins. And that's what ought to push us to the gospel. Obeying God's law cannot bring salvation. But once we are in Christ, we are under his rule. And he is the king of our life. And he is the lawgiver and the judge. And that's where the second use of the law comes in. It tells us how 
The father wants his children to act. And that brings us to the third use of the law, which is the civil use of the law. Now, when the law is used this way, it acts as God's agent to restrain evil. Though the law cannot change the heart, it can, uh, to some extent, inhibit lawlessness by threats of judgment, especially when it's backed by a civil code that that administers punishment for offenses. So it secures civil order. It protects the righteous from the unrighteous. It protects the law-abiding people from the criminals. That's what the, the civil law does when moral laws become public policy, okay? And we live in a country where many of God's moral laws historically have been enacted into public policy. Things like theft or murder or um, fraud. These are all ideas that come directly out of scripture of the moral law that are then turned into civil law or public policy. Now, this use of the law is super confusing to many people right now because we have been so conditioned to think by the culture that it's wrong to legislate morality. But the truth is that nearly every law legislates some kind of morality. It tells us what is right, what is good, what is just, what is fair, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. So the question is, hopefully you're remembering pop quiz, The question is, is what is the standard that is being legislated? By what standard are we deciding that something is fair or right or just or unjust? Is it according to God's standard or is it according to human standards? Remember the first sin, Adam and Eve taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They were going to decide for themselves what was good and evil. That is what we do today. We think that we can enact our own standard of justice because we don't want to legislate morality. Well, really what we're saying with that is we don't want to legislate God's morality. We don't want to turn God's moral law into public policy. But here's the thing. God does hold nations responsible for their actions for their violations of his moral law. He will send judgment against nations when they habitually, over long periods of time, violate his justice standards, especially when they enact laws and have widespread practices that violate his moral law. Just read Amos 1 and 2. Monique and I did a whole podcast series late last year on Amos and looking at Um, I believe part one of that series was like looking at uh, those first chapters of Amos and God's judgment of the nations. We discussed this also in some detail back in my teaching in, in January, One Nation Under God. So I know it's popular (laughs) to say we should not legislate morality, but what we have to understand is that all legislation is legislating morality. The only question is, is what is the standard? So when we're asking the question, how do I do justice? We're talking about the second and the third use of the law, because that is where we are going to look to find out what God's justice standards are. So we're going to look in the law. uh, And that is going to give us the details for how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And in so many of the conversations about justice, I hear preached from the pulpits, and, and I think you'll notice this it, once I kind of draw your attention to it, you're going to start noticing this, that most of the time, the conversations about justice start in the prophets. That's where preachers go, and they, they quote Micah 6.8, that you should do justice. But then they don't tell you what what that means. How do I define justice? How do I know what to do? And then there's kind of this quick leap 
to what the culture is telling us to do about justice. What I want to draw our attention to is to, to, to slow down, to pump the brakes and go look at scripture first where God unpacks what it means to love our neighbor in the scriptures. And the easiest way that I've found how to do that, how to teach about justice is to simply go through the 10 commandments. So we're going to look at the, an overview here of the commandments. So what I wanted you to notice here is that commandments one to four unfold how to love God. It tells us not to worship other gods, not to worship God through images, not to take the Lord's name in vain, and to honor the Sabbath. These first four commandments basically are telling me how to love God in a very practical and tangible way. The the second grouping of the commandments, commandments five to 10, tell me how to love my neighbor, honor my father and mother, not commit murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false testimony against my neighbor, not covet my neighbor's possessions. So when I look at the Ten Commandments, I immediately see that they break down into these two groups of love God and love neighbor. And they begin to give us the details. So I don't have to look in my heart and figure out, like, how do I love God or how do I love my neighbor? I don't look to my emotions. I look to my, the scripture first. That's where I'm going to get my marching orders for how to live a life that is obedient to God. If I want to know how to love God and love my neighbor, I'm going to look in the scriptures. And the Ten Commandments is just an outline. It's a great place to start. So when I look at Commandments 1 to 4, it tells me how to worship the correct God correctly. Now, earlier in this teaching, we said that these first four commandments were part of what I called the ceremonial laws. This is how to love God. And so if I were to continue reading through the book of Exodus, which my family and I just finished a few days ago reading through the book of Exodus, if I were to continue to read into Leviticus, I would find all these detailed instructions that God gave his people Israel uh, that would build out the details of commandments one to four there even further. God told his people how to build the tabernacle, how big to make it, how what all the furniture should be, what the dimensions were, the priest's clothes, gave tons of details about all the sacrifices. Okay, and it's just expanding the love God and those first four commandments. It's giving all the details. How do I do it? How do I love God? Now, if I were to keep reading into the New Testament, we would discover that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things that, that the laws pointed forward to, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. All of that's fulfilled in Jesus. Go read the book of Hebrews. And, and yes, if we want to love God as Christians, part of that entails worshiping, again, still the correct God correctly. We still need a priest. We still need a sacrifice. We still need blood. We still need a temple. We can't approach God in just any kind of way we want. We must approach the Father through the Son because of our simple faith in the sufficiency of his blood. Jesus is that priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. And the the temple now resides in heaven. Okay? So all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Now, when we get back to commandments 5 to 10... We really start to unpack God's vision for how to love our neighbor. So let's look at this and how we honor our parents, honor our father and mother, the fifth commandment. So if we were to keep reading in in God's law in in Exodus, we would, again, gain more details of of these commands. God doesn't just leave us to look into our hearts and live according to our feelings, about what it means to love or honor father and mother. He tells us very specifically. And, and there's all kinds of, of, slot of rules and laws and stipulations for how God wants his people to treat their parents. Now, I want to go to the next slide. I think I've got some scriptures there. There we go. So Exodus 20, 12 says, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Well, we notice this command is, is repeated in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
notice how Paul now quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy, now notice what it says, long life on the earth. So Paul kind of universalizes it there for the, the Jews and the Gentiles alike. So it's not so that you may live long in the land God has given you, this special promised land. Now Christians inhabit the whole earth. We, we are um, partnering with God as the Great Commission goes out so that he will rule and reign over the whole earth. But, but this is just a repetition of what we called earlier God's moral law. It is eternal. It is part of his character. God does not change. Um, there's, there's not a different moral standard in the New Testament as there was in the Old Testament. Now there's a different usage of the law. Now my heart is regenerate. The gospel has come near to me and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me so I can live this out in a more authentic way. Now let's look at some more of the details here. One of the ways that God says uh, that we honor father and mother is there, there's this stipulation attached. There's, there's this civil law. Anyone who attacks their father and mother is to be put to death. And attacks here is like physically attacks. We might call this abuse. If you are a kind of person who abuses your parents, that was a capital crime. Anyone who curses their mother and father is to be put to death. Now, cursing your, your parents here is not like just, you know, saying some bad words. But if you have a habitual lifestyle where that is how you're acting, that tells you something about that person's character, that it gets them to that point where they are so dishonoring to their parents. Now, one of the shifts that we see in the New Testament is that God expects his people to obey these commands, right? But the church doesn't have the jurisdiction to put people to death. And what we see in Matthew 18 is the consequence if someone is is walking in a way that is against God's moral law, if you will, we, the church doesn't kill them. Uh, that's, it's, that's not how that works under the new covenant. What happens is that they are disfellowshipped. They are put out of the local church, and we are to treat them as an unbeliever because they are acting like an unbeliever. But And the hope is that they would come back uh, through repentance. So... The, the nature or the, the, the jurisdiction of the church is different than Israel. Israel had civil laws where they could enact punishments. Under the new covenant, the church does not enact those types of punishments, but there is this idea of, of withdrawing fellowship and treating the person as if they are an outsider or an unbeliever because they are going so against God's eternal moral standard. We see in first Timothy that if you are at one of the, the features, one of the characteristics of acting like you are a non-believer is those who kill their parents. This is specifically mentioned in first Timothy one. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly, right? If you're using it properly, the law can inform your soul. It can shape your soul. It can teach you how to live. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. That is a use of the law that it reveals God's holy character. And over time, it can, it can, um, it, it can bring conviction to people. It's the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, really the word here is a very poor translation, should be kidnappers, man snatchers, liars, and perjurers. Now notice the correlation between these acts and what's mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Paul is essentially repeating many of the principles of God's moral law here that were part of the Ten Commandments. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. All right, let's keep going with a couple more examples as we start to wrap up here. Let's look at the command not to commit adultery. So this might be summarized as don't engage in sexual perversion. 
that will destroy God's picture of the family. Because if we were to continue going in Exodus and Leviticus, so we would notice there's all these other laws related to the marriage. The marriage is the, is the foundation of creation. It is established in Genesis chapter two. It is part of the created order. And so God takes it very seriously when the marriage is, is undermined because by undermining the marriage, you're undermining the very foundation of society in God's world. So there's laws about in against incest. There's laws against bestiality. There's laws against divorce. There's laws against homosexuality, but on the positive side, on the flip side, instead act in a way that preserves God's picture of the family. And in those cases where there's difficulty care for if widows and orphans, there's the concept of the kinsman redeemer so that a family's name can can live on, have children multiply and fill the earth. Again, the family is the foundation of society according to the created order that God set up. Let's look at a few specific passages to help unfold this a little bit more. Exodus 20:14 says, you shall not commit adultery. We see this principle standing behind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, I want to get us out of this mindset. Well, the law is just for the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us today. No, it's lurking in the background. It's shaping Paul's instructions throughout the epistles. It is actually reported that there is a, there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Even pagans don't do this. A man is sleeping with his wife, his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this again? Under the old covenant, the person would have been put to death. It was a capital crime if you commit adultery. In this case, Paul says you should have put them out of the church. You should have disfellowshipped them. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So Paul is telling this church, you got to wake up to some Matthew 18 principles. You, you got you to gotta, uh, purge this, this evil among you. But what's behind all of this? It's Paul's understanding of the law. It's Paul's understanding of these, these principles straight out of the Mosaic law because these are timeless God's character doesn't change. Now, I want to take a quick moment to explain a little bit more about why it is so vital to understand how to interpret these laws in the Old Testament. Because some people will say, I know you're already probably thinking it, some of you. Well, these laws, well, only the laws that are repeated in the New Testament still apply to Christians today. Well, I want to ask you a question. If it's true that only the laws that are repeated are still for Christians today. Where would I find an explicit condemnation against bestiality in the New Testament? What verse would I go to? Now, I might, you might say, well, maybe a verse against adultery. Okay, possibly. But there's no specific verse in the New Testament that condemns bestiality explicitly. So what we need to understand, again, is that God's character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if I look at this next slide here, there are these principles in Exodus and Leviticus prohibiting sexual relations with animals. And I could have had a few more verses, but I didn't want to have three slides of verses about bestiality. But what I wanted to show is that this is a perversion of God's ideal for the family. But I also want you to know that these are a part of God's eternal moral law. I want to give one more quick example as we um, kind of wrap up here. You shall not lie. Another one of the Ten Commandments. So another way of saying this is do not engage in distortions. Now, there are tons of laws 
in the Old Testament against lying, perjury in a court of law. There's laws about that. There's laws against bribery. There's laws against slander. There's laws against gossip. It even calls lying the devil's language in the New Testament. Instead, act in a way that establishes truth. God wants his people to be known as truth tellers. One of the most major principles, most frequently repeated principles throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, of how you establish truth is through the two or three witnesses. If you want to establish the truth of the matter, it needs to be through two or three witnesses. So we don't go on social media and just with a, a quick article that we haven't researched and start slandering somebody. We got to do some homework. We got to really research. We got to look up some primary sources. Why am I always talking about that? It's because God's standard, if I, if I want to act justly, if I want to be a just person, a righteous person, I don't go off with internet rumors and half-truths. I research things and establish the truth of the matter in multiple ways. I live uprightly. My word is my word. People know me as somebody who keeps my promises in faithfulness, okay? So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a snapshot of how we begin to put things, to put legs on this idea of justice. The justice isn't this vague thing that um, is just based on our feelings. It's based on the world's definition of love. No, we go look in scripture to know what a love is. And as we begin to kind of wrap things up here, I just want to encourage you to continue the conversation, to go check out the UP 2021 conference where we're going to be talking more about justice next month and go check out all the speakers and topics and all of that good stuff so that you can register and find out more about the conference. So if you are interested in justice and you really want to know more about that, go check that out. And I get it. Many Christians don't have an understanding of the role of God's law in their everyday lives. And they have a very truncated way of viewing the scriptures, or they only talk about the gospel, or they think the law isn't for them. And they, they don't really understand the reality that the law plays in the conversation about justice and the role that it plays in their everyday life. And you literally cannot have a discussion about justice without it. Okay, so when we think about social justice, the secular framework of social justice versus biblical justice, here's just kind of a little snapshot of how to think about that. Social justice tells us that looting a person's business is an issue of economic justice. Social justice says that abortion is an issue of reproductive justice. It should be a human right. We need to bring that human right to every poor nation on the earth. Gay marriage is an equal rights issue. Biblical justice says that looting breaks God's law. That's theft. And it breaks God's laws regarding private property. Biblical justice says abortion violates God's law against murder. Biblical justice says God defines marriage as being between one man and one woman. Can you see how you literally can't talk about justice without talking about the law? We have to know what it means to love our neighbor. To love my neighbor, the, the most intimate neighbor I've ever probably had is the child who grew within me. That I don't murder my child. I don't kill my unborn child. That is the ultimate sacrifice. To love my neighbor of the child that is in me is to bear that child, okay? Well, if we want to know how to love our neighbor, we have to look in the law. So we need to also carefully differentiate between law and gospel. So when we read Micah 6, 8, this is not the gospel. 
I know we like to put it on mugs and t-shirts and all kind of things. But when we say that God requires of us to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, this is the law. This is not the gospel. It will not save us. It's not part of God's rescue program. These are the things that God expects his people to do once the gospel has invaded our lives. So we have to look in the law for our definitions of the word justice. We have to look in the law, in the Bible, for our definitions of the, of the word love and humility and all of these sorts of things. Okay? So when we see a tweet like this one, and it says, social justice is not extra. Social justice is the gospel. I want you to recognize right away the category error. No, justice is not the gospel. The the gospel is like the upside down thing of justice where I don't get what I deserve. I don't get God's justice. I don't get the full punishment of his wrath. It is not the gospel. Justice is the love that I respond to God with by living a life before him because of the gospel, I'm now making him the king of my life and that I obey him. So no, justice, social justice is not the gospel. That's to say that is to say, I need to be saved by works. Works will not save me. (laughs) That is a category error. All right, we're going to put a bookmark in there for now. We're going to pick it up in a few weeks, part three. Um, We're going to continue to unpack God's principles of justice and how you can apply them in your everyday life. But what I want you to know for now is that we, if we were to read through all the laws, we would kind of put them in two buckets, love God or love neighbor. That's what they tell us. And then if we want to break that down further, we look at the 10 commandments, the laws kind of work like an accordion, continuing to unfold all of those principles and give us those details. Okay. So we're going to continue the conversation next time. Go check out my class, God's Big Story. Sign up. Go to theologymom.com backslash classes. Check out the UP conference. And I want to say thank you all for your support. God bless and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.